Yeah. Well, there's interviews with him online with Taylor. Yeah, I've seen a couple too. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm, I'm interested, like, how he would explain. I, I, I just keep coming back to you as a rhetorician, Trump, and like Trump's, uh, you know, to use his language, his kind of grab on the social imaginary. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you, see, you might watch. I, I just watched. Um, Sam Harris, I follow Sam Harris a lot, New Atheist, because I teach him a lot in my course, but he just had an interview with Dave Rubin on the Rubin Report. He talks about, uh, he uses uh, Harvey Frankfurt and on bullshit uh -huh. to talk about Trump. On that. It's, it's, it's basically like a 15, 20 minute like rhetorical breakdown of what? of, of uh, Trump using bullshit and not, and not lying. Right. Which is that like, but I mean, bullshit and not what? Not lying. Because lying is like when you like you know the truth and you're like con you're consciously trying to conceal a truth. Yeah. Whereas right. you just like you just kind of like grab on to the kind of social imaginary. You don't care. Right. Like he, he says like you know if I if I if I told you like I'm an hour late because there was traffic, and if you were to say no, well I just saw that you didn't leave your house <laughs> until, until an hour, but like I would be lying to you because I'd be trying to conceal a truth. Yes. Where he talks about Trump would be like. I'll just say both. Like, I left an hour late. I also, and then like a, a, two days later, I was like, well, I, also, I didn't leave my house for, you know, that don't care. Yeah, like, so, like, you just destabilize, like, any idea of, of truth right. or non-truth. Right, which, which comes to a head to me, what was it, Tuesday, when he meets with him and him, right? And he says all this crazy shit to him about Rocket Man and everything like that. Now you sit down with him, and there's literally four people in the room. Trump doesn't speak North Korean. So this... <laughs> So like the poor translator in that room, yeah, yeah. he's got to translate his, you know, all like there's people are reading Trump at all these different levels. Like yeah. what he's literally saying in the subtext of what he's saying, and now the poor translator in that room is going to take that yeah. to Kim Jong Un in a way that doesn't blow up the world potentially. You yeah. Know? Or, you know, it's fascinating. I want to you know? talk. I really want to talk to Tom Park because Tom and I, we we've been out to dinner several times and. You know, him coming from South Korea, we talked a lot about Korea, North Korea, and stuff like that. And he had a lot of interest, really interesting opinions. It's not American, not not U.S. centric. Yeah. If you look at North Korea and then China and then South Korea and Japan, like there's a lot more going on there than what the U.S. is what right. the U.S. is worried about. So I think he would have some really cool insights on that. Yeah. Well, um, the password is. Oh, yeah. The same as the address. It's the same, yeah, the WP21. Yeah. So, so yeah, just so with, uh, if you're in CUI underscore, the password is the same thing. Just told the whole world the password here. Oh. <laughs> okay, maybe I gotta go back. Are, we, are you recording right now? Just in case, I was all kind of going some pretty exciting places right there. Oh, so. C-U-I-W-P-A, that's what yeah. I need to get to. And just okay. do the exact same, there's an underscore, whatever, make sure you get that in there. Okay. Well, welcome, podcast listeners, all the millions and millions of you out there. It's grown, <laughs> it's grown since the last time. <laughs> They're going hog wild for this Taylor discussion. Uh, we are here for round two, which is, what is it, section two and three? No, three and four. Sections three and four of Charles Taylor's Secular Age. We don't need to do introductions again, but I just thought I'd give a brief intro so we know where we're at for posterity. Best case scenario, we become wildly famous because of this very recording. 
Uh, today we talked about um, kind of wanting to jump in with a different type of format. And um, as soon as you finish that uh, bite of granola bar, Dr. Sung, I'll let you take the uh, take the lead and, uh, and kind of open us up and, and then kind of share the format and how we're gonna, how we want to do it. And we already talked about this, but it'd be nice to kind of prime the pump a little bit with what uh, what you got. All right, sounds good. Um, well, John asked if you know any thoughts about about our, our first guy. I thought it was great. You know, uh, just getting a kind of a sense of each other, what we brought to the text and the various perspectives and. and Feel like we, we laid a good foundation for just even understanding what Taylor is trying to do here, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be great if uh, you know we have this meeting and one more afterwards to make it a little bit more personal in some ways, right? How does how are we translating this stuff to our own interests and research and work and teaching or whatever it is? And so maybe what, what we can do is we could we could kind of share some of that and we could chime in and say, you know, this this passage or this part is something that really kind of stands out for me. And, uh, and it's interesting in my work for these reasons, right, that we can give input and helping each other think through uh, what we could potentially do with this reading in terms of uh, our, our, our work. So, so I thought that'd be, that'd be great to, to go around and share like that um, and, you know, spend 15 minutes or so each person, you know, and then that way we could, we could offer some, some, some ways to think through. Because it, it seemed like last time, too, we're, we're all working through, right? Uh, these yeah. concepts uh, from from our own vantage points and, and interests. So I, I think that that'd be great. Maybe we could just start by just laying a good foundation, though, for the overview of the first uh, uh, the, the right, two yeah. parts that we focused on today. So <clears throat> anybody want to? Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, uh, we could start part three. <clears throat> the title is the the Nova Effect. Yeah, mm-hmm. and on page. Uh, 299, yeah. <clears throat> we get a nice quick definition of what he means there in that first full paragraph. Um, I think it's probably worth reading because it's um, it's so important to the sec- like after yeah. the first two sections, if you don't understand the NOVA effect, then it's, yeah. it's hard to understand the rest. So he says, um, uh, on 299, he says, um, the first I have just completed, he's talking about the different forms of secularity, an explanation of how there came to be an exclusive humanist alternative to Christian faith. The, fact, the second phase sees a further uh, diversification. The multiple critiques leveled at orthodox religion, deism, and the new humanism in their cross polemics end up generating a number of new positions, including modes of unbelief, which have broken out of the humanism of freedom and mutual benefit, for example, Nietzsche and his followers, and later he talks about fascism, and lots else besides. So that our present predicament offers a gamut of possible positions which extend way beyond the options available in the late 18th century. It is as though the original duality, the positing of a viable humanist alternative, set in train a dynamic something like a nova effect or a kind of explosion of alternatives is what I mean. spawning an ever widening variety of moral slash spiritual options across the span of the thinkable and perhaps even beyond this phase extends up to the present so it's very interesting there where he says it's almost like a kind of nitro and glycerin <laughs> you, you have one uh, one framework 
which is the kind of Christian framework where transcendence, a kind of transformational transcendence, like you will transcend just human flourishing and that uh, after death, that's where the transformation happens. So life, the good life on earth is not the ultimate good. You have that framework. And then you have the second framework, which is exclusive humanism, which is like, this is the best life and you need to do everything possible to make it the best life because there are no guarantees. It's like the Hamlet dilemma. Like we, we do not know what dreams may come. And they said, you take those two perspectives and you collide them together and then we have the Innova effect. We have like this explosion of possible options of, of both finding transcendence or looking for transcendence, but also wanting quote unquote like the, the good life. Yeah, that's good, nice. So I, I'm interested in the way that you, you kind of, um, what did you call it when these two parts, they collide? Like two frameworks I was thinking mm-hmm. yeah, two or, frameworks or attitudes or albums. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting to think about, right? It is, is, you know, is there, I mean, in many ways, this is Hegelian, right? And Taylor is a Hegel scholar, right? Mm-hmm. This is that dialectic that's happening. But, but um, I guess for me, it's really important how much of a collision caused these things, right? Um, is it a collision? Is it was it you know? Is it a rivalry? Is it um, is it what is that right? Because I'm thinking of other theologians like John Milbank, Stanley Hauerwas, and others. I think who see it much more as an antagonistic right, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and 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 uh, you know this thing that happened. And so and so these two and, and there's a kind of fracturing right. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what you're imagining here? Yeah, and I'm thinking. Uh, I'm thinking of it in, in Taylor's terms. Yeah. He has this additional division between kind of the elite and the masses. Yeah. Where he says all of this right. in the late 18th century is happening amongst the elites. Yeah. yeah. And it's not until uh, a, a bit a bit in the 19th century, yeah. but yeah. really in the 20th century, yeah. Yeah. that these explosions that these explosions happen. And yeah. it seems like with the elites, you know, someone like like Thomas Jefferson yeah. being a deist. Maybe it's not as antagonistic, mm. but once you get into you know post World War One uh, loss of faith kind of stuff, yeah. then it seems like it becomes more antagonistic. This, or maybe even the stakes rise a mm. little bit because there's so many, there's so many more people. Yeah, yeah. Well, isn't it? I find it interesting because I feel like Taylor mm-hmm. takes a lot of the heat out. I don't know if it's on purpose. It just feels like the argument that he's making. Doesn't feel heated. Yeah, he's describing it in a way that probably overlooks the antagonism. What's the right way to put that? Well, he's. Con- I feel like he does constantly undermine it. He undermines. He says, he says there's a way that you could see this as, and then you know, in in the chapter on let's say authenticity, right? And he kind of tells the story about how critics of this kind of individual atomism, right, critique it. But he says, but then there's also other things like we don't want to go back. We can't go back, right? right? Um, and so there is this kind of it, it's it, so it, it's for me in many ways. At one point, last in our last reading, he aligns himself with Hauerwas and Milbank and all of those. Yeah. There's a list, right, where he mm-hmm. says much of what I'm doing. It's I'm continuing the work of these guys. Yeah. 
But whenever I retailer, I find that it's not the same kind of polemic, and, and I do, I do, um, I do feel like, and so I'm trying to understand that because for me, I think as I as I think about some of the debates that are happening about between these two poles, right? How, yes, there are heated debates between them. Yes, there are historical moments where, right? I mean, they're they're just absolutely irreconcilable, but. But the way that Taylor seems to be telling the story, yeah, I, I feel like it's less heated. And I wonder if it has to do with this. And, and at, at a certain point, I'm not sure where it happened, but as I was reading along, all of a sudden, I had to remind myself, ah, he's not talking about this or that framework. He's talking about the background, the conditions of possibility of belief and unbelief, right? That make these frameworks possible or not possible, right? And, and for me, all of a sudden, once I got that, then everything started to make a little more sense, right? So the conditions include changes to what he calls a social imaginary, right? Mm -hmm. Which sets up the background for new beliefs and ideas. So like to take one example, right? His whole talk about evolutionary theory. Mm -hmm. As he's telling about that, I'm thinking, yeah, that's, that is what happened, right? Evolution did replace, right? Right, really challenge. Right, a certain view of a you know creationism that goes back six thousand years or whatever it was, but then at a certain point I began to realize, oh, but then he's actually saying that evolution did not replace that, right? right. So that means yeah. what is he doing there? And also it, it, it dawned on me that what he's describing is the conditions that made evolutionary theory even possible as an yeah. option. Right. Right. So what had to happen for evolution to come and then now challenge that creationist view? Mm -hmm. That creationist view came arose precisely because the conditions changed. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and it will probably change yeah. again. Again. Yeah. So exactly. that's what he's again. Yeah, I think that's what he's trying to say. And so that background all of a sudden is crucial. And, and all this, and that's the part that, that reminds me it's 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 not some institution or even some group that is driving right. these changes in any kind of intentional way, at least, right? Mm -hmm. Right, the intentional, so everything, all these movements and frameworks are responses to what's happening in the conditions of belief, mm -hmm. right? In the background. And, and this is why he keeps on coming back to say, this is the reason why secularization is neither inevitable Right, nor necessary. Right? Yeah. Or permanent. Or permanent. Right. Because everybody's just responding. And it's just it just so happens that this response has been pretty dominant, right? That but it but he then it seems like he's yeah. trying to avoid what he he doesn't use the term self confirmation bias, but he, he, he kind of hints at that. Like people fall into whatever master narrative they do by finding evidence to support their case yes and he's trying to avoid falling into that by saying mm -hmm. yes evolution happened but to reduce uh, a secularization only to that would be a mistake there's all and so like what Brian said last time we met was in effect it seems like what he's doing is uh, Nietzschean uh, genealogy and he doesn't use the word episteme but it seems like he's mapping out he uses the word social imaginary but he's mapping out of the episteme that doesn't happen like in a whiz bang function, and, and, and he's very careful when he writes to say that these things um, that, that there's always counter moves. He calls them counter pressures that are happening, and all these 
So he's very careful to not make kind of causal arguments, but to kind of yeah. map out the ways in which a clearing is made yes. that was not um, thought possible before because of all of the, the, the other kind of background that was going in in terms of enchantment and stuff that, that precluded one to think in this alternative way, this, this epistemic shift. And so, um, and so that's, so, so I like the way he writes because he's not trying, you know, I was saying um, that he, I think historians would be mad with him because he's not as careful maybe in terms of, but that's not his project. His project is not, is precisely not to give a historical objective account of the way these things happen, but rather look at all the different currents. And I mean, he uses nice language like strands and the way these strands kind of interweave but then they can also become frayed and, 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 and disconnected. So he has, um, so I think his, his um, tendency not to use a kind of causal logic in his own writing is um, kind of illustrative of his thought process about this, of the way secularization happened was not um, a, a kind of all one and done thing. And, yeah. and, and so there could be, I mean, I, I'm, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he might even say, hey, there's probably others that people could point out, and I'm, I'd be open to that. These are just the ones that I'm focusing on through literature and, and um, you know, examples of different uh, theological movements and whatever. So, yeah, I think it's uh, generous, and as long as you can kind of take that step with him and his per, kind of provisional answers to these things, yeah. then it's instructive to think that he's not trying to be prescriptive or necessarily descriptive, but just um, he's kind of um, just reflecting on this. Yeah, and looking at, I find that the, the reason doesn't seem antagonistic for all these reasons. But I know we're still at this thirty thousand foot view and reviewing kind of what the, what the things about these last two sections too. Um, but the the approach and the tone really complement each other, and, and I feel like personally this is helping me, especially in a reactionary culture that we live in. I feel like I've been trained, and in, in really part of the Christian culture, I suppose, has trained me to be much more reactionary to certain movements, as opposed, and I've already found myself doing this in conversations with friends, as opposed to seeing things as impermanent. Mm -hmm. like, this is, this is a, a movement of history. This is a way of thinking. I, I just read even a blog post the other day about this guy who was talking about how he wishes he could believe in, in Christianity, but how his mind... Has been has been really kind of formed by kind of materialist culture and a way of seeing things, and he really doesn't feel like he can actually have a faith because of this. It's a longer issue what he's talking about. Pretty thoughtful, but I liked actually even the way he confessed it because he's confessing the fact that his way of thinking is shaped by the culture and shaped by all that, that idea. Which is nice. I, I think the uh, antagonism arises. The I think the closer we approach what perceives to be a zero-sum game. Yeah. And he doesn't, and he never sees these in the, <laughs> as zero-sum game. I think the, 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 the great um, antagonistic text to this, I think, would be Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option, right. where, he, yes. where he perceives everything yeah. as a historical zero-sum game. Yeah. There, there's a, a moment here uh, on page 330 that it's very interesting that he almost evacuates antagonism <laughs> from the discussion. And this is, is, goes to the, the evolutionary, uh, both evolution and um, the, the biblical higher criticism of the, yes. of the 19th century. Uh, about halfway down the page, um, he's talking about the impact that the higher criticism had uh, on, uh, on believers and, and, what, and this new pressure to, to uh, prove their claims. Or he says, hence, 
the idea of fastening on the Bible primarily as a chronicle of events and trying to extract the maximum of exactitude from the accounts one finds there, a project typical of the post-Galilean age, and which ends up in the ludicrous precision of Archbishop Usher's calculations, seen within this framework, so like that's the background assumptions, yes. the whole of Christian faith stands or falls, he's almost, this is kind of funny, he's being ironic here, yes. stands or falls with the exact historicity of the detailed accounts of the book of Genesis. There has, for example, to be a universal flood 1,656 years <laughs> after creation, or close thereabouts, or else the Bible is refuted. He says, what is remarkable about this outlook in relation to what preceded it is the elimination of mystery. More exactly, mystery is tolerated in the designs of God. We cannot hope to understand you know, why the design happened, but it is banished from his creation. So the idea that you have to explain everything like that. that is imminent in creation is a result, it's epiphenomenal of the background of, of all your background assumptions. Yeah. And he said you don't have to do that because those background assumptions are going to change. Right. So it's not a zero-sum game. You don't have to be integrity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and another way it's you know like um, uh, uh, that um, just like a hundred pages later on 431 when he makes this analogy to the house um, the three-story house you guys mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And so it's the final full paragraph on the bottom of 431. The difficulty in this whole discussion is there is some unclarity as to what exactly the secularization thesis amounts to. There are, in fact, thinner and wider versions. What I'm calling the mainstream secularization thesis might be likened to a three-story dwelling. The ground floor represents the factual claims that religious belief and practice have declined, and that the scope and influence of religious institutions is now less than in the past. So that's one in secularity, one and two. Right. Mm -hmm. right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. The basement contains some claims about how to explain these changes. In Bruce's case, the account uh, is in terms of social fragmentation, including what is often called differentiation, the disappearance of community and the growth of bureaucracy and increased rationalization. But this doesn't exhaust the richest versions. These add a story above the ground for about the place of religion today, where has the whole movement left us? What is the predicament? What are the vulnerabilities and strengths of religion and unbelief today? Here we are in a domain of what I've designated Secularity 3, and of course, it is the answers in this domain, the upper story that interests most people, non-scholars, uh, but not only them. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so uh, you, you know, here, so it's like different questions. People have different questions, and you might be stuck in the basement, or on the first floor, most people, he seems to say here, are stuck in, or are more interested in the first level, but um, this, this, you know, Again, he refuses to like pin down, like, here is a capital S secularization. There are different secularizations, different people have different questions about it, and um, uh, they're all interesting, and to understand it from his perspective, I think, is to understand all three levels, right? And, um, and so one of the ways is to go back historically, um, uh, you know, to this, uh, this place about how um, understanding background frameworks that kind of clear out and make space for a new understanding or way of being. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm partial to people that don't take that polemical totally. view because I think that life, that it, it eats itself at some point. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and so this, 
I mean, clearly later on, I can't remember exactly where, but he lays his cards on the table and says, look, I'm Christian, and so I have my own stake, but I'm not going to plow that road. One, one thing he reminds me of, so he's, he's Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote a book of essays called Catholic Modernity, and um, it reminded me a lot of uh, the New York Times columnist Ross Dalbat, who just wrote a book on um, uh, Pope Francis. And um, he says in there, uh, what you have to understand about the Catholic Church is, they, is that they think in century increments. So they think in 100-year increments. And that it reminds me a lot of Taylor. So when you're thinking in 100-year increments, what happens in the next election cycle uh, or, or something like that, that, that becomes much less important because you're looking at the, the really large, almost tectonic plates of thought. He's like that, uh, mm -hmm. that uh, Foucauldian like episteme language. Um, you're, you're not interested in, you know, uh, or not interested might be a little too strong, but you de-emphasize <laughs> some of the contemporary partisan debate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What was, or is it much different in the Protestant church that I grew up in? Yeah, yeah. every election cycle is monumental. Oh, it's the Antichrist, right? Uh -huh. I mean, the last one, Hillary Clinton was the Antichrist. We have to defeat her at all costs. I mean, I, 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 saw, I have friends who are posting things like that on Facebook. You know, made me cringe horribly, but nonetheless, there, there's that kind of weight, mm -hmm. which is interesting that you put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I love what that means, right? This phrase, I just kind of jotted down, this, this idea that he, he seems to come back to it time and time again, that people have not always thought about it in this way. And, and the it, obviously, is religion, sexuality, community, education, on and on and on, right? People have not always thought about it in this way. Kind of opens things up in a way to me that I love. It takes it out of that polemic, takes the heat out, takes a lot of the antagonistic kind of thinking or tone out where I start thinking more broadly, perhaps across centuries, and realize, oh yeah, this may just be a phase, right? And, and it may not all be going to hell in a handbasket next week, you know, when, when Trump wins the election, or when Hillary wins the election, or whoever wins the election, right? Yeah. Doesn't matter. Um, yeah. And I, I, I keep thinking because, you know, he said these earlier, um, he doesn't use the word epistemes, but these earlier um, uh, modes, uh, uh, social imaginaries are kind of powered by whatever the elites are thinking at that time, and that starts breaking down. But in a way, I kept thinking, okay, but there's still elites that you're pointing to that are kind of not um, um, causally moving the social imaginary, but in influencing that, right? Yeah. And so in a way, is he the next, does he kind of see himself with this tone that he's writing as a, a possible, because he's a Galian, as, as a possible as a touchstone in the broader scheme of thinking through these things and thinking differently, yeah. you know, than yeah. a Like, why write the book? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless you exactly. think you have the potential to, um, like these, these scholars and these elites that you pointed to before, kind of not, not hard change the conversation, but just kind of, you know, push. I mean, that's the mobilization thesis, right? Is that somehow you've got to have people think about things differently, and that's to me is maybe part of his kind of subtle language project. Is like, maybe we need to think about secularization differently because of 
the uh, like what did you say the evangelical church that you yeah I probably should have qualified that because not every Protestant church is like that the right. one that I grew up in is very much more reactionary and we're a little more on the charismatic right. kind of evangelical side yeah and so so that's a way to think about secularization but that's kind of a dead end because it's much more nuanced than the kind of uh, than exactly. than the way that a lot of people think about secularization I mean the way I was even brought up was much more kind of reactive and less nuanced and I see and he seems to be saying that, that that road can only bring you so far to understand this, this whole process. It's I, think not, it's even, yeah. I think it's even in the title. I don't know if I mentioned this last time because I was talking to somebody else. I can't remember um, about this book. Because you, you read this book and you want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it the title is, is the, it's not the definite article, the secular age. It's the indefinite article, a secular age. So this yeah. is just a secular age. And if you look at it as it's the secular age and we have lost something of incredible value and now we are like the last remaining remnant of heroes the benedict I mean, yeah we are the yeah like we, if we are <laughs> contemplating the benedict option then like yeah I mean, you you it's hard not to see it in, in a zero-sum game and to have and to talk you know within a kind of persecution complex yeah you know with that, with that kind of with that kind of language yeah. whereas that's that's certainly not his not his project he's not, not the Right, not only that, but to, to speak that language uh, seems to only turbocharge the secular project. In totally. <laughs> oh, yeah. Right, that's what his point, too. Right, yeah. right, yeah. The Reformation ended up sowing the seeds of the secular age. Right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So the more that you cling out of these, these narratives, these grand narratives, the tighter you claim, the more that you are feeding the beast that you're trying to defeat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting ways. Yeah, I like what you, what you said, maybe think. <clears throat> The reason I wish that I had written this book, <laughs> don't pretend you didn't think that while you read it. Um, the reason I wish I had written this book is because of that very thing you said is I see such a value. And I don't think this, I don't feel this way about every book that I've read, right? Where I, as I read this book, I realize he's helping me kind of open up. And if he helps others open up, I mean, that is, that is a mission accomplished. What an incredible thing to do, to take heat out of a lot of conversations, to remove some antagonistic um, perspectives to make people think more broadly, more long, with more longevity, more deeply, in more context, in more contextual ways, historically even. Right. What a, what a, what a mission, what a great accomplishment. Right. Because otherwise we just silo down and just right. do our own thing. And, and so like to the question that Tay started out with, like what's your, your interest, you know, like what, so like to me, my interest with this book is on 428 um, uh, because there, the, the last full paragraph on 428 um, he says, I'm not arguing some postmodern thesis that we are each imprisoned in our own outlook and could do nothing to rationally convince each other. On the contrary, I think we can marshal arguments <laughs> to induce others yes. to modify their judgments. Yeah. And what is closely connected to widen their sympathies. Yes. But this task is very difficult, and what is more important, it is never yeah. complete. And to me, that's the project that I'm yes. interested in, is like the rhetoricity of his book, of his writing style, of the ways in which given the secular age that we're in, it's not a fait accompli, it's never complete. And so what are the ways, I mean, he's writing this book, in my view, because he's trying to do precisely this, but not in a heavy-handed way. Not in the way that we're mostly used to the, the, the kind of polemical debates of the heat. He's trying to take the heat off, and so he's clearly convinced that by being careful and being, um, uh, that it, it, it's not easy, <laughs> it's very difficult, it's a rhetorical task, and it's always changing based on the context in which one finds oneself. And so finding a language, for example, to communicate the sublime, which he talks about earlier, is interesting to me because
because that is precisely the problem. It, it is um, to, to come upon a language that takes the heat out, for lack of a better term. Like, how do we do this in a way that speaks to you, to our fundamentalist friends that are kind of imprisoned in their own way um, by their own outlook that he starts out that sentence with? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and that 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 is my um, um, interest in this, and like what I what I like. A language beyond, like he talks about earlier about art being mimetic and the kind of discounting of that, any kind of symbolic form that isn't purely representational or tries to be representational is what I'm interested in, that those, those subtler languages that he talks about and how we can teach students in either their writing or their speaking to not engage in the kind of um, prisons <laughs> that, um, and, and, and we can find ways to use the secular world's tools to reopen these other spaces. And, and, and that's what I'm interested in in this book. Yeah. Like how, and you know, he doesn't really prescribe that ever. He's, I, I think philosophers almost are verboten from letting the word rhetoric leave their fingertips or mouths because of this kind of, uh, but, but to me there's, there's a rhetoricity within this that he's, sure. um, that he's effecting that I think that, you know, like you're saying, if he opened you up, how, what is the, the form and of his writing style that can be emulated to, yeah. to open up a conversation? It's form, it's word choice, it's structuring of the argument, it's right. all these interesting rhetorical things, these devices he's employing. Absolutely, his, his approach is very, I feel like, disarming in many ways, mm -hmm. which I like. Disarming in, in a positive way. I do like this one because it does betray some of, of his motivation which I think is interesting, right? I think we can marshal arguments. I mean, I love that. The idea that we can help others modify their judgment. I feel like that's part of my calling. Can I put it that way as an English professor? Right. I feel like I'm called to do that. I'm called to help. I feel like others have helped me and continue to help me widen or broaden, modify my judgments. And so this book, as I watch, as I look at his rhetorical structures, as I look, as I look at the way he creates this argument, as I look at the way he kind of looks at a secular age or looks at secular ideas or secularity or philosophical movements, I feel like there are tools here that I can use in my classroom as I work with students who are trapped either in a fear, fear mode because of something they believe in, because they think something is a zero-sum game. I can help draw them out. Right. Which I think would be a great gift. The problem is that you couldn't give this book to your students or your fundamentalist <laughs> friends. Yeah, I mean, it's, still it's so inaccessible. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so yeah. it's like, so as much as he decries the, the elitists or, or says that that kind of is fragmented, he is kind of in that realm. He is. Writing in the Hegelian, the Foucaultian. So it's like, there's, there's got to be a way to take this and now um, make it accessible to the masses. To, to, if... if the social imaginary is up for grabs and we want to kind of shift it, which I think is kind of his aim. And I don't, you know, that's why the interviews and stuff he does afterwards, I'm interested if like, does he talk this way in the <laughs> interviews that he's doing for public audiences? Yeah. Because it seems to me like there needs, like a lot of this would get lost in the translation to precisely the people who need to hear this. Isn't that what you said last time, Tay? That you saw him speaking and uh, there were, it was a big auditorium and <laughs> people, Real smart people in the group. Um, I think that, 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 that there's been a lot of misunderstanding of yeah. his work and his project, right? And uh, 
And so that's, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, do you feel like there's other uh, rhetorical theories, communication theories that right now work on these things? I feel like I've been hearing a lot of conversation, at least among rhetoric people at UC Irvine, about empathy. Right. Right. And, and the rhetoric, how rhetoric can... And affect theory. That's right. Right. So, and, and that oftentimes in the Enlightenment gets pushed down, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, 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 and he talks about that. He doesn't really go after affect theory, um, but he talks, and he doesn't even go about pathos so much, but he says that this kind of uber instrumental rationality kind of tamps down all of those kind of impulses. And so there's kind of a revival of affect theory um, because of an interest in, in uh, because because like rationality and instrumental rationality only gets us so far and again we end up siloed. Yep. And affect yes. theory is where we make, you know, like finding commonplaces, you know, this is what Albrecht's Hiteca talk about, you know, like in, 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 in addressing a universal audience versus a particular audience that we have to find um, um, a topoi, commonplaces, you know, that we can we can all gather around and draw from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so he offers this to us in this room because we've read a lot of stuff, but like, in terms of getting the people that most need to hear his message, that's where the stuff gets lost in translation because it's, at, it's so theoretical. And it's interesting to me, but I'm just like saying, okay, how did I take this to a freshman class and talk to people about, um, you know, and, and, and make this not just kind of theoretical and interesting, not just navel-gazing, but kind of uh, performative. I think this is the, the key word is topos there, right? I mean, the ways in which, um, as professors, we mediate that place, right? And instead of just throwing a question for debate, right? Are you pro-abortion or anti-abortion? <laughs> pro-life, right? Pro-choice, pro-life. That's that high school yeah, imagine right. debate that I think a lot of our students hated. Right. Maybe some of them thrived off of it because they, they like that kind of just, you know, let's, yeah, let's get at it, right? <laughs> but, um, but maybe perhaps there's a way that, that those discussions must be better mediated. Yeah. You know, uh, our presidential debates have to be better mediated. Oh. You know what I mean? And, and the, the issue of mediation, and in a sense, that's what he's doing here, right? He's mediating right. all the... There, it is antagonistic, right? There, there are heated debates going on. But the way that he mediates that with a kind of background, right? An understanding of, let's, let's, let's see how this particular debate, right, can only exist because there's this already a shared common something. Right, right. So the people who are calling for a literal creation, six thousand year creation, the higher biblical criti- criticism, they both share a certain background of we have to understand the Bible much more rationally, right, and history much more intellectually, right. And so that is what makes this arise. And so it's a kind of okay. I'm glad you guys are debating this, but here's the reason why you can't even debate this. You already share a common ground, right? right. Because without that shared common ground, you wouldn't even be right. in the same room. That's right. But this is, this is what's happening with political fragmentation today. Right. You get the sense that the right and the left, they're not even talking the same language. Right. Right. Those people who are kneeling at, at uh, uh, sports games, at football games, right? Versus yeah. the, those who are criticizing them. It's almost as if they're not talking the same language. And did you guys see Steve Kerr's uh, response to the NFL? No. Um, so, so the NFL made it so that you cannot kneel. Yeah, right? I know. Right? Yeah. And so Steve Kerr, after that, he just said, 
he says something like, like, it's like it's ridiculous. This is the difference between the NFL, the NBA. The NFL is just just catering to their you know this this kind of base, right? Their fan base that is problematic. And he says that the people who are kneeling are not kneeling because they're dishonoring, right? The soldiers or the veterans or whatever, right? They're kneeling because of their own thing. And so he was he was able to kind of mediate, right? Show. I know that you guys think it's about this, but it's not about that. Well, that's what um, yeah, Kerr talks about. Uh, it's it's, uh, it's supposed to be not disarming uh, yeah. the flag as a as a proxy kind of symbol for America. It's actually supposed to honor it. Talking about how through protests, yeah, the idea that Martin Luther King says yeah. America is about the right to protest for yeah. right. Yeah, and so he's saying that this is supposed to be a kind of honoring of that. Yeah. And so the dishonoring it is a it's, yeah. it's different background terms. That's right. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so they're 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 not even in the, on the same topos. Yeah, right. right? Mm-hmm. And 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 having their own, they're shouting at each other from within, <laughs> and they're imagining right that that the other is somehow having the same conversation with them. And so I think that kind of mediation is so important. How do we, how do we bring that background out to the foreground? Well, in, in part of his style, I think is um, not just is this is so little boy. So he yeah. occupies all of these different positions and gives them their fair voice without discrediting them. Even like the the, yeah. the old the new earth theories and everything. So he's not saying any of these are just backwards and he never, I mean, you can kind of read into it a little bit, like, but, but, but his style is such that he offers a voice for all of these different positionalities in a fair and even-handed way. So, so, so you have to kind of think, okay, I kind of thought they were stupid, but I, I appreciate where he's coming from. I, I can kind of empathize with that because he's given it their voice. Right. But how do we not slip into relativism at that point? Yeah, because that's good. the kind of tolerance, right? That right. that actually takes on. So so that too is a background, right? right. Liberal it's, tolerance, right? Yes. Actually, and, and so people who, who critics of that say actually it's very intolerant to that kind of tolerance right. is right because you can no longer actually make a strong claim that that way of seeing things is undermining my faith. Right. Right. Um, yeah, and so I, I worry about that kind of slippage as well. And so I, I do think that Taylor is not as heated, but I don't get the sense that he shies away from a fight. No. He is against Nietzsche and the neo-Nietzschean views, right? Yes. He is against certain forms of individualism and hedonism that is problematic. And atomism. And atomism, right? I think he is against certain forms of dry, rational either faith or, right, uh, scientism, right, yeah. naturalism. Um, yeah, that is, that, that's that tricky balance, right? Yes. I mean, how do, you, how do you open it up without becoming now completely relativistic and, hey, Johnny, yes, good Johnny, right? <laughs> good Sarah, right? And they said completely opposite things, right? <laughs> right. And, and it becomes, and, and that's why our students sometimes hate poetry. Their experience in the high school is just that. Oh, good. Right? I mean, the teacher's yeah. glad that they said something, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's, there's the one obnoxious student who's just making stuff up, right? Uh, just yeah. to, yeah. you know, and the teacher's just like, oh, good, right? And, and all of a sudden it becomes now all values are out the yes. door. Well, how many times do you, is when I taught freshmen, especially, and I guess sophomore core here is, is that way as well, when they come in and they say, well, you know, somehow it comes out. Well, literature is just whatever we decide yeah. it's going to yeah. be, you know? Uh, what? Yeah. Like some of the, that's what comes from the high school perhaps at times, right? Where this just this 
hope that someone will say something or react inside. I, I did my, <laughs> on my, on my uh, course evaluations, it's like, the professor always thinks he's right. <laughs> and I'm like, like yes. as if he's got the right answer. I say, yes, I do. Well, you bet I do. <laughs> I spent 10 years in school to figure out what that, the, the right, right answer is. <laughs> right, but then, then, and then you don't want to swing to this dogmatic side, right? right. And so, right. And, and that's, that's, you know, you're right. I mean, what is this style? So like you said, he think that he's, but he never fully, come, he leaves just enough of a question if he is against Nietzsche or if he is against scientism. You know, it mm-hmm. seems like he is, but <laughs> he never fully just says, now Nietzsche is wrong and it leads to fascism. Because even when he talks about Nietzsche and fascism, uh-huh, he says yeah, that's yeah, what link yeah, yeah. Is, is wrong. Yeah, like yeah. you can't just say Nietzsche leads to fascism. Hey, so he even yeah. defends Nietzsche, even though... He does, he, he does. He, really, he might yeah. be against Nietzsche. So he gives even Foucault a fair shake. And yeah, he, yeah. So he gives all these people a fair shake. And he goes, I think he's against these people. I'm not quite <laughs> sure. Because he kind of defends it pretty well. Yeah. And, and so this reminds me, in terms of rhetoric, the history of rhetoric, it reminds me of, uh, you know, like, let's say Cicero's De Oratore. Right. Right? I mean, you have Antonius and Crassus, right? Who are having this great debate, right? And yet Cicero mediates that, right? Cicero, the rhetorician who says, I've learned from both of these. Here are two opposing views, right, on rhetorical theory, and yet within this great dialogue, right? And so I feel like the style is dialogical. It cannot be systematic like Aristotle, right? And because once you get into that Aristotelian style, then it becomes very much systematic and rational. And there is no room for the kind of contradiction, right? Or invention. Or like invention. Follow, if everything is formulated in the Aristotelian right. style, that's right. Then it eviscerates all invention, which is crucial to Cicero, who, who becomes one of his candidates. That's right. It's absolutely. Stasis theory and things like that, right? And so I think in, in many ways, uh, you know, this his style. I, I, I would I would characterize it as Ciceronian, as as Hegelian, as right. It is a kind of historical narrative, but the, and this is the reason why we said last last time that you you can't just paraphrase this book right you can't just read Jamie Smith because no, if you I just have. take the facts yes. out right the, the points out and you miss the, the narrative you miss those moments of oh that opening up and his style of yeah. opening those moments that's up, right mm-hmm. because to me the style is so generous right mm-hmm. and his writing style is so anti-polemical maybe yeah. is the way yeah. to say it that yeah. It kind of bespeaks of his, um, you know, back to Cicero, Cicero was sapientia a eloquentia. So it's not just wisdom or eloquence, it's both and simultaneously. He has an eloquent style that you miss if you just bullet point it and read the cliff notes of this book. Because his style is is generous and it's... um, it's open to different ideas without coming down heavy on any of them, really. Yeah. I, I, and it's very different from Plato's dialogues, right? Yeah. Plato's dialogues is very much, you know, office, that's right. I mean, they all, they look ridiculous, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, they're just absolutely ridiculous. Gorgias disappears in the first third of <laughs> right. Gorgias, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? And he's, he's gone for the rest of the dialogue. And there's a sense in which Plato's dialogues are definitely polemical in ways that just shut down dialogue, right? But Cicero, that style does open things up in ways that that's, uh, you know, yes, there's strong disagreements, but I've, I'm, I'm taking from both. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I kind of that same thing down there. Jamie Smith, I like his book, How to Be Secular. I'm actually looking at it again post-Taylor. I read it originally first. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't suffice. I think because Jamie Smith didn't want to write a 900-page book, right? And you, and you have to. I mean, I, that, we started that with that last time. The idea that this really can't be boiled down because it is a narrative. It's a yeah. story, right? Yeah. Um, and I like that. It, it's meta. I, I feel like it's meta-polemical, right? It goes, it, I don't know if that's not the right term, but it's, it's, beyond, it's above the, the polemics, right? He pulls us beyond and says, don't. Mm-hmm. I, it almost, you almost feel silly right. dealing in the polemics, right? Because he says, no, no, no. This, this, the, the real vision of this is up much higher, right? To really understand it. Um, yeah. There's this unemotional narrative. I, that's how I want to describe it, but it, is it a, I don't know if it's much, as much of a fair shake for each of these arguments, as, as much as it is, we just said, an, almost an unemotional narrative. This is how things have unfolded. And to look at it in that way is not necessarily to say, Luther really jacked it up. You know, If he hadn't been there and him shaking the things like he did, we'd be a lot better off. Secularization wouldn't have happened as fast. So he doesn't go there. He just says, and this is what happened. We have a man, Luther. We have a man, Calvin. We have these different voices that came along because of these things that were going on in society and civilization. This is what happened. Almost like you're sitting telling your grandson or something like that. This is, what, this is how our, our, our minds were changed over the course of the last 90 years about these subjects. It reminds me of the, the, the famous quote about Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Instead of, if God wrote a novel, he would have written Anna Karenina. Because it's so objective. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just objectively talking about people's inner lives. That's the term. Objective, you know, it, yeah. And it's a kind of empathy. It's not sympathy. It's not, I feel for you. But it's an empathy. Like, I can understand where you're coming from. But from a more, obviously not totally objective. But from a more kind of objective uh, viewpoint. And I think the, the way that he does that... Um, or the reason he does it is because it's inherent in secularity three, which is the the basic, his basic understanding of secularity is that there are unavoidably a bunch of options. Yeah. And and that, that cannot be thought away, that we can never revert to the time when there were options. Yeah, it's open. (laughs) And that's the way. Yeah. And that's the way it is. And so, if that's the case, then that's right. we have to deal with we have to deal with that you know kind of social reality. And so, I think that's he yeah. tries to move between um, almost a kind of soft relativism and then pull back and say, okay, but and he says every once in a while, he'll say, you know, as a believer, you know, just really quickly, I'll throw right. that I'll throw that in there. So he's um, he's trying to deal with the kind of reality on the ground. I think. I think there's a great uh, passage in three eighty seven that kind of speaks to all of this. small paragraph in the middle, second half. We are in fact all acting, thinking, and feeling out of backgrounds and frameworks which we do not fully understand. To ascribe total personal responsibility to us for these is to want to leap out of the human condition. (laughs) At the same time, no background leaves us, and this for me is the key, utterly without room for movement and change. The realities of human life are messier than is dreamed of either by dogmatic rationalists or the Manichaean rigidities of that of orthodoxy. And uh, for me, that's, that's I think, beautiful. That is. That's what we're saying. Yeah. 
So it, it kind of sums up, I want to say, the history of critical theory of the last 200 years. <laughs> you know, in many ways, it's like, this, this is here, here's the summary of what's happened since Kant, you know, uh, kind of a thing. You can't jump out of your human condition. And yet, whatever that framework is, we can understand some of it, we can rationalize some of it, even if not all of it, and whatever you can rationalize, what, and because there is still that remainder, it, it doesn't make it exclusive, right? So you can't be entirely objective, and whatever you can objectify isn't the only option either, right? There's always that slippage uh, yeah. possible there. So that's, that's really interesting about uh, trying to think about the rhetorical style of Taylor. That's, uh, that's I think there's a there's a project there. Yeah, because well, I think all answer. writers are you, you don't write unless you're up to something, right? That's cool. And 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 he good writers can kind of hide that up yeah. to something behind behind their prose, like Plato does for you know a lot of years. People, I mean, Plato gets away. He's the longest standing critique of rhetoric <laughs> because he writes the dialogues as though these are happening between <laughs> people, you know. <laughs> And so, um, so Taylor is up to something, and, and his style is such that um, it's disarming, and, and you kind of go, and you find yourself slowly kind of being, you know, seeing the world the way he sees it, even though he says it's a secularism. But you start going, no, I kind of, I, I kind of buy Taylor's uh, argument, you know, even though I, I get that there's lots of other accounts of secularism, and he even, he even gives voice to those. But like, I'm, I'm kind of convinced. So if he's persuaded me and I teach this stuff, what is it in his style that has led me to this place? And can I can I mark out the form of that style in which he's writing? And then can I emulate that that um, that style in my own kind of because because the other thing that's interesting as I read was that this started out as lectures. Yes. Right? So yeah. he's speaking and then he converts it says the beginning. So that's something interesting about um, writing and speaking and how when you're speaking, there's, um, like we were talking earlier about the writing process and how when you go through all of these drafts, it kind of, it kind of takes some of the, the uh, vibrancy out. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you go through the, the peer review process and whatever, but when you're speaking, it's just you. It's kind of like a, 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 a flow of consciousness, yes, but, it's kind of, but there is a, a method to that flow of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so that finds its way here. I'm sure it's edited to some degree. Sure, yeah. But, um, but, 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 so when you're, like, as we're doing now, when you're speaking out, you're not, you're not as um, careful, maybe, as when you're writing. Mm -hmm. So stuff kind of... Yeah, because he says here at the beginning, this book emerges from my Clifford or Gifford lectures at Edinburgh, entitled Living in a Secular Age. But then he goes on, he says, um, it's been quite some time since then, and in fact, the scope of the work has expanded. The lectures of 99 covers parts one through three of the present book. Parts four and five deal with matters I wanted to discuss then, but lacked the time and competence to treat properly. It's kind of funny. So you wonder if you just had a recorder going, and then yeah. uh, after his lecture, he just yeah. sat down and you know, <laughs> typed it out. Yeah. <clears throat> At least parts one, one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. And then comes back to... Uh, I mean, because you think about your lectures, like you go in with a plan, but you don't... It, it, I mean, very few people that I know of just read the script of their lecture. That would just yeah. be lame, yeah. right? So, like, as you're ad living, no two classes. I've taught public speaking for 23 years, and no class has been the same. There's always variations, and I have my basic talking points, but it always changes up because now I have a host of other experiences. And so, as he's, you know, 
as he's talking this out, he probably had a plan, but also things are coming to him as he's speaking, and then he translates that into this this prose, and it's like, the re a part of me thinks the reason this is so interesting is precisely because of that, you know, because he's able to be inventive as a lecturer. Yeah, yeah I mean, his style is, you know, it's not laden with all the footnotes, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's just, he'll, he won't translate the French for you. No. Yeah. Yeah. Just, he expects you to know it. <laughs> yeah, he just, and he'll drop names like crazy, and you're like, wait, yeah. who's he talking about? It's just, for me, this is, this is an art, this book for me, I imagine that this is like his archive of who he is. Like, this is, this is how he's going to become artificial intelligence. I was thinking. You know what I, mean? I, I felt like he's trying to put in everything he knows. Yeah. To into yeah. this book because it's so it's it's in terms of writing style sources of the self his earlier book is much better would you agree yeah. is it really much better huh. right it's much more focused it's yeah. the narrative you know mm -hmm. when he tells you about things you know what he's doing this feels like he's dumping everything he knows into this it, like it's like it's like his last will you it know? feels to me like um, the book yeah. of an established Famous that's academic. Right. That's right. Is what it sounds like. Yeah, you don't have to. Like, imagine yeah. this book being that's right. written by a young academic. As someone who's yeah. trying to check it, right, right. right. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. This just wouldn't fly. Yeah. You know, just yeah, like that's Latin right. and French untranslated, <laughs> yeah. and it said things like, you know, uh, this is kind of like, you know, this brings up this idea, and then parentheses. Think about what Nietzsche's doing, and you're like, yeah, wait, yeah. well, what is the, it's what is Nietzsche doing? Right. Right. And he'll just throw out these yeah. these things, and so it's almost yeah. like you uh, are given almost like the diaries of, a, yeah. of, yeah, that's of right. an established academic. Now, now he's like earned the credibility to just think out loud in many yeah. ways, which which was Rorty said at a certain point in his career and age, he felt like he was undignified to to argue carefully. <laughs> really? Yeah, and so that's why he, he re resorted to these sweeping narratives, you know, which is kind of what Taylor's doing. I said so. so yeah. Narrative for sure. Right. Yeah. And do, you, do you guys, in your fields, read much of Harold Bloom? The anxiety of influence. And, of course, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah. But I feel like Harold Bloom does this kind of thing. But I don't. I don't think that Harold Bloom is as good of a writer. To be honest with you, I, I feel like I have to translate more of his stuff. Than, sorry, no disrespect, Harold. I love you, um, but. Uh, I just feel like he has a lot of those he takes a lot of those um, liberties if you will as he writes and I like it it's like listening to an old sage yeah. right mm -hmm. just spellbinding you know yeah. and it's not even formulated in the sense of a strict academic That's argument right. you know no. it's just like when, when Harold Bloom will say things like you know he's probably the greatest novelist since Faulkner and like in a way you're not really supposed to take that as an empirical claim <laughs> you know like you're not supposed to be like well no he's actually the greatest novelist since Hemingway you know like yeah. well, you would totally miss the point if you were if, yeah. if you were right. to get angry with that so it, it's more about it's kind of like rhetorical invention it's more just like thought yeah. experiments and that's what he's kind of what Taylor has earned as, as well I think and because of that do you think that this book even though the, the, the sources itself was better written, that this book is more influential? I, I mean, I don't know, like, or, 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 like, will this be the book that he's known by, or will that be the book, his former book, be the book that he's known by? I think this will be the book that he's known by. I'm just afraid that people aren't actually reading it. Oh, this yeah. book? Yeah, because I'm, I, I get the sense that people are criticizing what they think he's saying. 
because, but, you know, it's been 10 years since this book's been out, and I haven't read it in the last 10 years, but I'm around so many discussions of it. And so reading, I came into it with a very strong idea of what, based on the conversations I've heard, what I thought this book was going to be about, mm. and this book is not turning out <laughs> not to be about those things. Interesting. And it makes me think, there's a lot of people who've really just kind of misunderstood what he's trying to do. Or read the cliff note version of the book, you know? Or tried to force it into their own polemic. That's right. Right. Or just cherry picked out certain things that he said and then made that um, yeah. mimically to stand in for the entire book. Yeah. I feel like what James Smith does in a way. Not in a lack of integrity way, but I think he's seeing something a certain way, and he, he, try, he takes the book and, and pulls it whatever direction. I want to use a political direction, direction, but you know, he yeah. pulls it in a certain direction, which I don't think is a I don't think how not to be psychic is a bad book. I just think it doesn't capture. Yeah, I would say that one, if I had a critique of of Taylor, there are times it seems to me where the language is getting close to a kind of specialist language in the sense of, you know, you really can't read 